I love this time of year where we get to sing Christmas carols. And to sing with this choir is always a joy. So thank you for that. That was delightful. Our text of scripture for this morning comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It is Matthew and Luke's Gospel where we learn so much of the detail about the Christmas story. And the first chapter begins with a long genealogy leading all the way to the birth of Jesus. And then it picks up in verse 18. I invite you to listen for God's word. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall, call, they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Well, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. But he had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we do give you thanks for this season in which we find ourselves, this season of Advent and Christmas. And we thank you for all that is yet possible. Speak to us now as you have spoken with those we've just heard about. Open our ears and our eyes to see and hear you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, this has been an unusual political year, to say the least. One of the unusual things that's occurred this year, due to President Obama's efforts to lift the embargo in Cuba, and now, coupled with the death of Fidel Castro, relations with Cuba have reopened, providing tourists the opportunity for direct flights now from the United States to Havana. And that's the first time in a generation that that's occurred. David Cortez Fuente is a Presbyterian pastor and New Testament professor. And he and his wife Josie from the Presbytery of San Gabriel are now teaching in Cuba. They're teaching New Testament Greek and Christian education in a revitalized seminary there seeking to provide leaders for the Presbyterian Reformed Church in Cuba. 
They actually invited me to travel there last October for an event that was celebrating the reunification of the church. I was unable to attend, but several members of the Presbytery of San Gabriel were able to be in attendance for that invitation. Now, many of us in this sanctuary are old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis over 50 years ago. The entire nation was on pins and needles, wondering whether a nuclear war was about to erupt with the Soviet Union. It was certainly a more significant event than today's controversy about whether Putin was part of the hacking into the Democratic National Committee's database. Some 2,000 of the most important people in the government were issued laminated passes with this gold wire thread that was through their ID photos to prevent any counterfeiting. And these cards were given that they would provide entry in the crisis of the 60s to the alternative seat of government, which was a cavernous nuclear bomb shelter that was dug into the rural Virginia mountainside. Among those 2,000 passes were nine passes for the Supreme Court justices. But when officials came to the Chief Justice, Earl Warren, with his pass, he had a question for them. I didn't notice a pass for Mrs. Warren, the Chief Justice said. Well, um, well sir, uh, actually there's uh, not room for you know, wives. Only very important people. <laughs> well, in that case, said Warren, now you have room for another very important person. And smiling, he handed the pass back to the officials. Because Earl Warren wasn't going anywhere without his wife. The Christmas story doesn't exactly start out that but it ends that way. Joseph eventually and ultimately had that same kind of love and commitment for Mary. But it didn't begin there. The Christmas story includes the miracle of one man's decision to actively participate in God's plan to redeem the world. And isn't that always the way it is? One person at a time deciding to participate. Albert Einstein is attributed with the saying, there are only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. And the other is though everything is a miracle. Christmas is that time of year when so many people who live as if nothing is a miracle at least begin to wonder whether they might be missing something, something important. Other, religious, other religions hope to lead the faithful into sort of an otherworldly state of mind and experience. The goal is to depart from the realities of this life and retreat to some place within, perhaps, of tranquility and peace 
to attain some level of nirvana. But Christian faith begins in this smelly, dirty stall with this untimely, messy birth of a child born to these poor parents in a remote village with shepherds and with wise men close by to witness this earthy and yet heavenly event. Culturally, we clean up the Christmas story the way the Gospels don't. It's a story about birth and poverty and about the human struggle for understanding and meaning. And it's about the Creator God who comes to us and becomes one of us. It's messy, it's unexpected, it's counterintuitive, it's even absurd. It's also hopeful and healing. And it has the power to renew and to transform our life stories. Once Jesus described the contradiction of faith on one occasion when he said, those who want to save their life will lose it. It's those who lose their life for my sake who will find it. It just really doesn't make sense. And yet, that idea may be truer than anything else we think we know. But our first conclusion, just like Joseph's, may not acknowledge the miracle of it all at all. You see, what we know about Jesus, what, or excuse me, what we know, what little we know about Joseph, is that he appeared in his family tree at the end of a long list of ancestors. That long list, just before the passage I read in the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph is a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, and therefore Jesus is no interloper, but by birth the rightful heir to the throne, the Messiah who is to come into the world as foretold by the prophets. But boy, you look at that list and you go, wait a minute, this family tree includes some rather unexpected people. Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, and Tamar, who became the mother of twins by her father-in-law, Judah, who mistook her for a prostitute during the harvest festival. Am I if Matthew was really attempting to demonstrate the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Maybe he should have cleaned up the family tree just a little bit better than that. You see, the birth of the Messiah isn't through a perfect family history. It includes some unsavory characters. And the point is that God's promises fulfill through our broken lives and despite our embarrassing histories. So Joseph, here in the story, wakes up one day to find his life is completely wrecked. His fiancée is pregnant, his trust has been betrayed, his future is revoked, his name is ruined, his dreams are shattered. Law and honor demands that he break off the engagement. To do so publicly 
on the grounds of infidelity would humiliate marriage. It would cause her untold economic and social harm. So he decides, I'm just going to divorce her quietly. Kind of a no-fault divorce. Irreconcilable differences. And then we can put our lives together in private, separately. And we all know what it's like to have your dreams broken. To struggle with fear and grief. When our minds kind of spin out of control, even our sleep becomes fitful and restless and we become exhausted by all that turmoil within us. But sometimes there's a rare kind of blessing because finally we let go of all of our efforts to control it all. We become even more open. We become willing to listen. In sleep, Joseph can do no more to control his situation or make things right. He's passive. He's open. His own dreams are shattered, and instead he hears of God's dream for the future. An angel tells him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. That's always what has to be said to people when God starts intervening in their lives. And in the darkness of sleep, Joseph lets his own dreams go and he begins to embrace the dreams that God has for him and for all the world. He doesn't walk away from the controversy Instead, he believes that somehow the Lord's in the midst of it. And instead of washing his hands of the whole affair and pursuing a life with another wife that preserves his reputation and his standing, Joseph embraces the mess he finds himself in, and it was a mess that was no fault of his own. And that very mess becomes the birthplace for the Savior. Now, how unexpected is that outcome? You see, Christmas may be celebrated corporately. Let him in. We, you know, it's great to have somebody come in. <laughs> Christmas may be celebrated corporately. Apparently a very important announcement is just around, yeah, okay. Christmas may be celebrated corporately, but the miracle of Christmas always comes individually. Christmas is in your dreams and mine. It's in your heart and mine. It's in your prayers and mine. Women and men worship individually. But they may be surrounded by hundreds or thousands of others who pray similar prayers. Each one of us reaches out to touch the grace of God, though countless others may reach out for that same touch. In the Christmas story, suddenly everything focuses upon one person. This morning it's Joseph. This Christmas, 
It might be you. You see, all things swing on a hinge. Every human being, you and I, are hinges. What events, what circumstances, what future swings upon us this morning? And how silently that's, that hinge does its work. Much depends on us, you and me. What is the church? It's a concept. It's a construction in our minds. Until you and I come here. These buildings are not the church. You are the church. And today the hinge swung open as you decided for yourself to attend and become church. What is a home? A home is an idea. It's an ideal until we become part of it. You are a home. It's not a house. It takes someone who's a hinge to create a home, to plan, to purchase, to prepare, to clean, to comfort, confront, to love. All events swing on a hinge. And every human being is a hinge. So what are you prepared to open yourself to today? What are you closing yourself to today? Something perhaps that God may intend for you? Joseph was making plans to swing close until God intervened. Seems to me maybe we really all belong to that family lineage of Matthew's. Joseph's family. Maybe our names ought to be added to that long list of those who bear Joseph's family likeness. We surely can recall a time in our own lives when we didn't bargain for what we hadn't planned. We can probably all relate to having our own plans for what we were going to do and who we were going to become, and then we woke up one day and we found our dreams were broken too. How did we end up in this place or in this predicament? This wasn't planned, and sometimes when we're exhausted by our own efforts to live in the midst of some mess that our lives have become, we faintly hear the voice of the Lord saying, don't be afraid. You're not alone. I'm with you to the very end. Even in the midst of this mess. May not be what you planned. But the Lord can be found in the midst of life's messiness. And may just be waiting for you to turn around and stop running from it. Joseph actually had to do something. Mary's story is a hinge story, but it's a little more passive one. Let it happen to me as you say, she said. 
But Joseph had to take Mary as his wife and allow this alternative future to unfold, believing God was somehow in it. Joseph had to take a stand. He had to trust that there was no reason to be afraid because God would somehow provide whatever was needed and he would be able to survive the humiliation and the loss of his honor. Now the truth is that each of us, like Mary and Joseph, have to be willing to believe the absurd proposition that God can work in the mess of our lives. What we need is a faith like that of Joseph, who is able to live with paradox and incomplete understanding and rather than walking away from it in search of an easier life, he embraced it. And he swung open. The Christmas story tells of the mystery of God's intervention in life that invites us, like Joseph, to swing open and to participate in the healing that God intends for the world. And it includes the paradox that God requires human partners, like Mary and Joseph and you and me. We are the hinges upon which God intends to transform life in this world, but we have to be willing to believe that God's story of salvation is unfolding in and through So much depends on us. Not because God can't create a church or a home or a community or a nation without us, but because God has chosen individuals like you and me to be the hinges upon which this story swings. So what kind of a hinge are you? And will you open yourself to the miracle of Christmas.